Oncology Systems Limited are the leading provider of radiotherapy ancillary equipment in the UK and Ireland. Serving the community for over 22 years, we pride ourselves on exceptional service and quality products. Please take a moment to visit our website, www.osl.uk.com, and take a look at our product lines, which include macromedics for patient immobilisation and IBA dosimetry for all your radiotherapy quality assurance needs. We are more than happy to take your questions, so please do get in touch via our website or email inquiry at osl.uk.com and one of our specialist team will be available to assist you. Everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to the bonus episode with our very special guest. My name is Jay McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Naaman Jolka Anderson. Hi everyone. So we're pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Erin Kennedy, MBE, and they're going to be discussing thriving with breast cancer and their amazing sporting achievements to date. So welcome, Erin. Thank you so much for joining Naaman and I. We're extraordinarily giddy about you coming on. Um, So thank you and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Erin, for anyone who doesn't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe what you're famous for? Yeah, so um, my name's Erin Kennedy. Um, I, well, Neva Sotsky Jones, um, which is a bit of a mouthful, but when I got married, I thought um, I'm going to treat all of the Rome commentators out there and um, change my married name. Um, and uh, that's a little bit of a hint that I'm actually um, an international coxswain. Um, so I am. Uh, have been in the GB rowing team now since 2016. Um, I was the spare for the Rio Paralympic Games um, and then I joined um, the GB rowing team in full and I've been there ever since. So I've coxed uh, in the Olympic program and then in the Paralympic program as well. And I've been part of the Paralympic rowing team uh, pretty much since sort of 2018 and beyond. Um, I've won two world championships, uh, two European championships, uh, most recently the Uh, Tokyo Paralympic Games and I'm also the world record holder in that event as well Um, and as a coxswain um, often the question is first asked sort of you know do you need a disability to coxswain the Paralympic team Um, so personally I don't have a disability I sit in the sort of bubble um, where a lot of other athletes do um, in para sport sort of like the stoker in cycling or pilot in blind skiing so I'm an able-bodied competitor in para rowing but unlike in para sport, you also have coxswains in able-bodied rowing as well. So you basically get the best of both worlds because you get to dabble in all the different types of Olympic and Paralympic sport. Sounds like a lot of training. Um, bef- you know, before up till now, what was your normal kind of day or week like? Yeah, so um, we're really lucky um, as rowers in the UK um, that we are funded through the National Lottery. Um, so essentially I get to do my hobby as my job, which is amazing. Um, so we train, uh, centrally in the national training center, which is just outside Henley on Thames. Um, and rowing is a pretty all year round brutal sport. So we pretty much train sort of 50 weeks of the year. Um, and you get a couple of weeks off after a world championships, but then you're resetting and ready to go for the next, um, six days a week. Um, Monday to Saturday um, and you're normally doing two to three sessions a day so generally speaking you have sort of half days on uh, Wednesdays and Saturdays um, and you'll be getting home at maybe I don't know two o'clock something like that and then you probably spend about 100 year uh, days of the year away so competitions training camps uh, prep camps things like that Um, so it's a really busy schedule and it's something that's really really structured and that's 
in the last couple of months something that's really changed for me and I'd say that's probably one of been the biggest challenges. So being the coxswain do you have to be as fit as everyone else because you are just kind of shouting at people really. <laughs> yeah absolutely everyone's like what do you do? Um, so the coxswain sort of sits um, between a couple of different sort of roles within the team. Um, the best way to think about it is you are a jockey um, because there's no getting away the fact that you're getting a free ride. You are you are definitely uh, not adding any physical watts, but you're adding a lot of sort of brain power and strategy, um, which the horse wouldn't necessarily be able to do. So you've got the sort of the jockey element. Um, then you've got the sort of um, quarterback in American football. Uh, you're doing a lot of reading the play, reading the players. You're sort of like the captain as well. So you're doing a lot of the psychology a lot of the um, kind of delivery of, of sports psych, both in the field of play and off the field of play. And then you're also a bit like a sort of race engineer in Formula One because you get a lot of data. So a lot of uh, what I actually see is, obviously I see the race in front of me, but I've got a lot of um, tech, which is also giving me a lot of feedback on individual rowers, wattages, um, speeds of boat, how many strokes we're taking a minute, how fast we're covering distance and things like that. So I've got to process that and deliver that in a coherent way to the athletes. So that's the sort of all the mental side. Um, but the physical side of things um, is pretty, pretty strenuous as well. Um, you have to be on weight. So I'm a weighed athlete. So I've got to be um, just under 55 kilos. Um, and I also do all my land training with the athletes. So I probably train sort of eight to 10 times a week physically with them. Um, and then when I'm not physically on the water with them um, and I'm coaching on the bank, maybe I'm probably cycling sort of 12, 16 kilometers a session alongside them, um, as well as then lifting weights in the gym with them and, and doing sort of land training. So it's it's definitely, I'm not going to pretend that I train as hard as them, but I, I do a lot of training with them and it's a lot of hours. <laughs> Erin, what's the psychology side of things? Because you said kind of you're the leader, you're supporting them from a lot of the kind of strategic elements of rowing. Um, but I would imagine as well that psychologically, and we'll probably get into this later on in the conversation, but psychologically, are you also supporting the team? Oh, yeah, it's a huge part of my job. Um, to be honest, you know, when you first start coxing, you know, a lot of what you're doing is essentially sort of learning the rowing stroke and trying to sort of increase people's kind of technical ability and things like that towards the the kind of the pointy end of of the sport where I am now I find I'm doing a lot more sort of trying to tap into their psychology trying to get them to work smarter um trying to get them to work then they don't need to work harder they know how to push themselves but it's how to work hard in the right way um a great example is you know the way that I would maybe communicate during a race to different individuals in the boat to get essentially the same outcome um, so one of the athletes in my boat in Tokyo, um, he was very motivated by gold medals, by winning, essentially. So the way I would communicate with him, the way I'd maybe ask for a technical change or drive him would be very kind of results based. So for him, you know, knowing what motivates him and I'd be asking for him to make some sort of technical change to push the rate a little bit more. And I'd be kind of talking about the end result and pushing for a gold medal and, and giving him sort of very tangible, um, quite logical steps in order to get that gold medal. Whereas another athlete was very much about doing her best. Um, and she was very much about sort of uh, how can she personally add value to make the difference? And if she did her best, almost the colour of the medal didn't matter. So for her, I particularly, you know, gave her a hard time going into Tokyo on a couple of technical changes and things like that. And so then 
you know, when we were out there and during the race, I asked for a technical change. And then I'm like, yes, that's it. I can feel that that's making a difference. Yeah, that's it. You're adding value, you know, and sort of this. And so for her, she was doing her best and it was moving her towards the end goal. But it was all about the process. So by understanding these athletes in and out and bear in mind, you know, I probably spend more time with these athletes than I do my own husband. Um, you know, I, I know them really well. So it's trying to tap into their psychology at their sort of absolute limit. What made you be a coxswain and not actually the person rowing? Um, well, this is a podcast, so unfortunately you cannot see that I'm five foot two. <laughs> um, so I am probably sitting around a foot shorter than my average um, teammate. Um, but I actually, I, I was sporty growing up. I'd say I was sporty. I did lots of netball. I did cross country. I did um, all sorts. But I was very, very much a sort of... Um, participator and master of none I was very good at beach cricket but unfortunately that was not really Olympic discipline um and I went to university um and I actually did loads of musical theatre and drama and and things like that and that's what I thought I'd carry on doing at uni really and um when I got there I went to Oxford and everyone um everyone just gave rowing a go I'd come from a state school we'd ironically very close to the Thames but never been on it uh, in a rowing capacity and and I thought well you know we're at Oxford let's just give it a go um I went down in Freshers Week and they sort of took one look at me and thought oh hang on have you thought about coxing um and I just got into it there really and I mean I think most people will say the same about team sports why do you start a team sport various reasons why do you stay in a team sport it's because of the people and the atmosphere and the culture and rowing's a really work hard play hard culture um and I just met some great people and, and I sort of stuck at it from there really so I have rowed a few times but I'm not very good <laughs> I'm much better at telling people how to row than doing it myself oh at least you're honest though <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um just a quick question about rowing I think we could probably just do a whole podcast on rowing because <laughs> we've both been talking about this all day but um so with the, like the the winter olympics this year there was a lot going on around lack of diversity so winter sports predominantly in areas where they will be very from privileged backgrounds. Is this sort of a shift that you might be seeing within rowing as well at the moment? Yeah, there's a real drive um, with kind of DNI um, in rowing particularly, and a place where it's starting at the moment actually, which has been really good, is is, is firstly um, lockdown really helped um, get people on rowing machines. Turns out so many people have old ergos sitting in their garage and some at some, you know, sadist in the past, um, then five, six years ago, bought one, thought it, this is all, this will be all right, put it in the garage, never use it again. And so indoor rowing's definitely really started to take off. And I think that's actually a really good starting point for getting um adults and and younger people into rowing because it's something that actually most people have at school. Um, there are actually sort of developing sort of junior indoor rowing championships and things like that and then there are programs which are trying to then start to get them sort of if they can basically get a little bit competitive on an on an ergo and sort of enjoy it they're definitely going to enjoy rowing because it's so much better than an ergo um one of the big problems obviously is accessibility because essentially you need to be you know physically somewhere that where there there is somewhere you can go down to a club um and that's definitely something that I know British rowing are working on quite hard um but you know if anyone's listening and everyone anyone's thinking about rowing at all ages there's an incredible um kind of youth uh rowing uh scene in the clubs and things like that but actually sort of masters rowing is, is huge in the UK 
um, really, really big. Um, and so if you've ever kind of thought about it, go down to your local rowing club because I guarantee, you know, you will be welcomed both with a pint and um, a blade and sort of just get stuck in because it's a really great it's a really great exercise, but it's also really it's really sociable, to be honest. Um, and the best part of it is, you know, essentially you can always just rock up in the summer when the weather's nice and have a pims. <laughs> <laughs> I love that aspect of rowing. Uh, growing up in Hentley on Thames was always nice, largely because I got amazing waitress jobs because I always waitressed at all of the uh, rowing regatta, um, but also because I got to enjoy nice pims whilst I watched very fit people row up and down the Thames. It was lovely. So Erin, um, you've been thrown again into the limelight recently not necessarily just for your amazing achievements in rowing but also because you received a breast cancer diagnosis would you be able to just share with us kind of what happened and how you got diagnosed and and what you went through yeah absolutely so um I was actually on training camp when I found a lump um so there is paternal history of breast cancer in my family um particularly there are um my uh my dad's sister and then my nana's sister as well both of them were diagnosed in their 30s so also kind of young breast cancer as well and something I've been you know pretty aware of and also I've got two sisters as well and we've also been very proactive about you know knowing your normal and and, and checking regularly um all of us have been had and had a lump checked in the past um at least once um and I was on training camp in May in Varese. So we regularly um, spend a lot of time out in Varese, just kind of south of Milan. Um, and I was in the shower and just felt felt a lump, which I kind of hadn't felt before. Probably about the size of about, felt like a sort of a, a pea to a kidney bean. Um, and um, kind of, you know, initially you think, oh, is that? And then you kind of go again, you're like, oh, yes, it is. It is something. There is definitely something there. And um, I got in touch with my team doctor um, and uh, asked if he, she might be able to help me essentially um, arrange to see somebody. Um, one of the reasons I went through that process is because I was coming back from uh, this training camp and I had a 10 day turnaround in the UK until I was due to be flying off to um, the first World Cup of the season in Serbia. And I didn't want to be waiting until after uh, Serbia to, to get it done and I thought if I if I go to my GP I'll sort of I won't have as much control over my timings so um through uh the UK sports and athlete medical service she got me seen um by a, a surgical oncologist um and I went and got it checked so I went and if I'm honest you know I was going thinking that it probably was going to be fine because I'd had something checked in the past um uh, you know, had had an examination, had a ultrasound and a biopsy. Looking back, I had kind of when I had the biopsy, she took sort of three biopsies, which maybe should have been like a, maybe a little bit of a like, hmm, they definitely want to make sure they're getting, you know, they're getting enough of the, the tissue to check. But, you know, obviously you're, you're not thinking the worst necessarily. Um, and I remember leaving the appointment and uh, Mr. Smith, the oncologist saying, oh, you know, we need to schedule this, this uh, follow up um can you do next Wednesday and I was due to fly to Serbia on the Wednesday and I was like um can we do this over the phone and she he was like very very wisely very pragmatically sort of said well like you know if it's if it's fine then obviously that's an absolutely fine conversation to have over the phone but it's not good uh news then it's not really a phone call conversation so maybe we should kind of 
see if we can make the time to come and chat. And so um, I had a chat to my team um, and uh, the team, uh, the chief medical officer and, and everything at, at rowing and basically said, look, this, this is where we're at. They obviously already knew I was getting a lump checked. Can we postpone my flight by a day? Um, and I'll join, join the team a day late. And I had a good chat with um, my team as well, because obviously I cox a four. So there were four athletes involved. It's not just my decision that I come a day late, because it means we miss a day of training before a regatta. Um, and they were all fully on board um, that, you know, we could postpone the, the flight. And my stroke man, Ollie, who's sort of like the, uh, he's sort of the alpha, alpha of the crew. He sort of is the leader of the crew as the rowers. And he said, you know, well, what if it's not good? <laughs> will you still want to come? And I was like, yeah, I will 100% be coming. He was like, okay, well, it's your choice. We'll support you. That's what you want to do. And so almost, I think, because I had all these conversations thinking, well, what if it's this or what if it's that? I think maybe I was tiny bit processing it already, even though I obviously didn't know that I'd need to rely on that. Um, and then obviously when I went in for my appointment, I, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and, you know, that was a really tough conversation, particularly my husband was with me and he was, I could see him out the corner of my eye, quite emotional. And all of a sudden you get all of this information that you don't understand these words and <laughs> what does this mean and, and things like that. And, um, yeah and so I was you know processing it sort of almost immediately and and I, I sort of obviously did what I needed to do on that day had some extra scans and stuff and then I said right I'm, I'm going to Serbia so then I packed got home I, I got my mum and dad and my husband's parents over as well and we all had some dinner and I was like good vibes only I'm going to tell you everything that's been said and then we're just going to have a nice dinner and then I'm going to go to Serbia <laughs> that's what I did <laughs> do you think it was a bit of a coping strategy saying that you need to go you don't want to let your, your teammates down oh yeah a hundred percent um I'm someone who's sort of always a I, I like to do I'm not really a sitter um and so to, for me I was thinking right okay what what's the the legit um logical thing to do here right I could uh, I could wait and have this appointment and then if it's bad news I'm then sat at home and all the normal things I would be doing going and racing and prepping to compete with my team would be taken away from me. I would just be sat, not doing my day job as it were, um, and probably stewing on the fact that, am I ever going to race again? What does this mean? You know, you, particularly at early stages of a diagnosis, you you have a sort of a statement and not a lot of um, answers to your questions because they don't know the answers yet. Um, and I thought, gosh, that sounds like a horrible weekend. Um, I think what I'd rather do is go to compete instead and basically put it in a box because um you know whilst obviously long term that's not a very helpful stroke coping strategy and it's not something I've done since I knew that probably um I would get diagnosed and nothing would happen for at least a week um or at least as a minimum about four days <laughs> which is just enough time for me to go and compete so um I thought yeah I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go and I'm, I'm so glad I did um because I I I was able to prove to myself almost that I was able to do it because there's an element of me, you know, which thought, oh, I think I can hold together. I'm pretty sure I've got this. Like, I can do this. But then there was like 2% where I was like, oh, what if I just cry the whole time? <laughs> and um, thankfully, um, yeah, there, there wasn't much crying. I was okay. <laughs> it's fascinating to think that you were able to put it in a box. I know you talked about the psychology element earlier, but I suppose that's some of the training that you've kind of shown us or that you go through. But for you, it's not just for your individual level. It's how you kind of help other people around you how what you know obviously you talked briefly about the psychological impact of the diagnosis in that moment but 
after competing kind of how did you how did it help affect you mentally yeah so um I basically going out I knew that obviously I needed to let I told obviously my coaches and sort of the the leadership team what was going on um when we go out as well as British Rowing to kind of go and compete um there can be you know there's probably about 70 or 80 of us um that are sort of going out and um you know I obviously wasn't about to announce this to the whole team so really there was maybe about eight to ten people who knew of my kind of my close teammates basically and the people in my boat um and I had said to them essentially look this is what you need to know um give them the information because I wanted to give it to them before I flew out so they had time to process it as well because it was you know it was going to have an impact on them um and then I said this is what I need from you (laughs) which is essentially don't ask me if okay no dramatic hugs or long looks like you know we need to just we're here to do a job and so um and then after the racing that's sort of when I able I I kind of let let that barrier down a little bit you know had I had some sort of good conversations with um some members in the team and we sort of talked about it a little bit more and and I was sort of quite guarded and I particularly at the beginning because I didn't really know what it meant um you know does this mean my season's over does this mean I'm not racing anymore or I you know I was pretty confident that it wouldn't mean I was going to have to retire but you, you just don't know so um yeah so that that was quite hard and then and then the shift of sort of coming back I think I went from a stage of trust in the trust in the medical team trust in the medical trust in the, trust in the medical team and like waiting and then it gets to a point where you're like I don't want to wait anymore please just tell me what's going on um and that probably those sort of two three weeks after diagnosis I think was probably the hardest because I was living in limbo uh, waiting on results waiting on treatment plans and things like that um and it's not surprising particularly you know I've I've been I've literally could tell you where I'm going to be in the world and probably what training session I'm going to do in a year's time for the last five years and all of a sudden you know you're cut loose and that was the hardest thing for me I think mentally just to kind of process and deal with and now I'm in a treatment plan I feel so much better wow it like it's pretty incredible to just hear about how you were able to compartmentalize everything and obviously from the psychology of the team like it just shows what commitment you all have to rowing that you know knowing that you had this diagnosis and thinking do you know what we're here for a job this is what we're going to do but you could definitely see from just how you interacted with each other in the media after you'd you'd won how close you were but also there were lots of tears there were there were there were more longer hugs so you could kind of see that emotion coming out do you think that it helped in that moment do you think they were I don't know I'm just thinking if I I've had friends who've had diagnoses before and I get angry and I'm just I'm just thinking do you think that there was some element of that of your teammates who were just like, I can't believe this has happened. I'm feeling angry about this. Yeah, I, I think um, it's something that like I talked about, it's after the, the Europeans um, when I, I sort of rounded off my season there because I was I was two rounds through chemo by then. And that was when I was like, okay, this is, this is where I need to, I need to basically stop because it's actually the world championships are coming up at the end of September and I'm moving into weekly treatment and there was just no way logistically I could actually physically race three times in one week in the Czech Republic and receive chemotherapy in the UK. Um, and that was really kind of when I had to say, no, I, I can't do this because I'm slowing the team down. Um, and that was a real massive 
decision for me and it was important that I made that decision um, and I made it with the team and and so we raced the Europeans knowing that it was going to be the end of my season and you know hopefully it's the end of my season it's not the end of you know my my Olympic cycle um, and for them I think it was hugely emotionally charged um, Ollie, who I mentioned before, who sort of questioned, you know, will I be okay coming out? Um, he sort of caught me on the dock right before we boated and basically was said something along the lines of, I'm going to, I'm going to end myself for you. Uh, and um, that literally nearly made me, I nearly was, I nearly broke it down before we'd even pushed off to kind of go warm up for the race. Um, and it was a really powerful race. I think it will probably, you know, probably, I don't, I don't think I can do anything else in any sport, uh, any on any world stage that will probably ever compare to that race really because because of what we were all doing it for um because we were all just doing it for each other you know I wouldn't say they were doing it for me we were just doing it for the unit that we were at the time and we we hopefully you know will be going forward but yeah I I I don't really know if they're feeling angry it's a really interesting one um I think I I've tried to really consciously just decide not to be angry um because I think I don't know that it will help me if I'm honest. Um, I think, you know, it's allowing yourself to be emotional and upset and things like that. I think that's really healthy. I don't know how angry would help me. And I, I think I've tried to sort of, instead of say, sort of why me, it's sort of maybe be like, well, what for? Um, and so, you know, talking to you guys and, and talking out about it, that's the what for. So, you know, let's let's make something out of this not ideal scenario rather than think gosh this is just awful for me it's quite interesting you put it that way it's something i see in my clinics with patients a lot when they originally they've sometimes for breast cancer treatments you might have surgery and literally three weeks later you'll be starting treatment so for us in radiotherapy it can be that quick where people haven't necessarily had time to process it so like you it's there but it's in a box it'll come out at random times when you're not expecting it but then when they come and see someone like me and for a review slowly they're building up to letting the emotions out and then it can be anger it can be sadness acceptance whatever but I think a lot of people now we see on social media so similar to what you're doing they come to the end of treatment or during treatment or afterwards and then they become advocates for other people but they realize the power of that because in some shape or form someone has done that for you so like that moment with Ollie for example and like I, I watched your interview, I watched the race to be fair, and the interview where you cried. I tried not to cry, and then I remember my other half like, "You never cry. Why are you crying?" <laughs> I was like, "But it just means so much. Like it's such a big thing. Like that moment. Like uh, everyone's played sport or been in a team at some respect, but in sport like that, when someone with you, when you don't know the future, you do give it your all, and that's the same as what patients' mm-hmm. families do for them. So I think that's why when Joe's asking about the anger is. For us, you know, we talk about the bystander effect, but people look at people going through cancer and they want to do everything they can. But in that moment, that's exactly what like Ollie and your team did. Yeah, actually, I've not really thought about that, but it is something actually that's incredible. It's really actually amazing that they were they were able to do that because like you say, like to some extent, you know, my my husband and my family and, and all those sorts of things, they're, they're obviously doing everything and doing going above and beyond. But yeah, it's something that's almost so physically tangible and something that will be sort of with us forever um you know like even so our our European champs medals was really great at at the games you could go and get them engraved and you know we all got them engraved with the date which is not something you necessarily always get to do with your medals and you know you just think gosh like I think we'll all just remember that day forever just you know various reasons with various emotions but it, it was yeah it was one of the most powerful things probably I've ever done 
So Erin, how have you coped with treatment? Because there is a lot in the media at the moment and especially amongst us as healthcare professionals around prehabilitation, rehabilitation. We know that there are essentially, you know, um, chemo wards that are bringing in. I, do, I haven't seen rowing machines yet, but I've definitely seen exercise bikes um, and you'll get patients who will actively cycle whilst they're getting chemo. Is that something that you experienced? So I haven't actually actively done any exercise while having chemo but that's definitely something I will look into because um I haven't seen that on mine um I um I found treatment um so I'm actually having treatment sort of prior to surgery um so for me um I'm coming into it probably as fit and healthy as I ever have been which I think is really positive um I think that the downside of that, I guess, you know, there's flip sides to both, you know, is, is probably obviously I'm as fit as healthy as I've been now, probably by the time I'm coming around to having surgery and needing to recover from that, I'm probably not going to be as fit and healthy as I probably would have liked to have been. Um, but in terms of the treatment so far, I've been having um, every other week um, EC chemotherapy. Um, and so far, I've, I've actually been faring okay. Um, she says tentatively, um, you know, I haven't had a lot of uh, nausea and haven't had any vomiting. Um, I've obviously, you know, noticed the obvious um, with kind of hair loss. I have been sort of doing scalp cooling, but even so, I'm, um, you know, really noticing that now. Um, you know, skin changes and things like that. But yeah, generally speaking, I've I've been all right. And I think, you know, I've really, really tried to make sure that um, even on the day that I have chemotherapy, that I essentially go out for a walk that evening. Um, even if it's, you know, the first day I was very tentative, <laughs> dragging myself, wondering how far from home I should actually go. Um, but making sure that essentially I'm still trying to sort of exercise. And I guess, you know, I've been in a position where I used to train, you know, sort of eight to 10 times a week of kind of 80, 90 minutes. So now, you know, I can step back in relatively major way, but then still trying to do exercise. So I'm trying to do kind of, you know, 40, 40 minutes to an hour on the bike sort of a couple of times a week obviously in the week that I have chemo slightly less but I think that will fare me hopefully quite well as I move into the next type of my treatment when I'll be having weekly treatment so you know my my peak will be a lot shorter so just trying to monopolize and when I feel well and and really try and kind of keep keep the blood flowing and keep fit. How is the kind of I don't know how the healthcare professionals who are with you and around you for treatment what's their viewpoint around exercise because a theme for quite a few people who've come on to talk about living with and beyond cancer they've had very mixed experiences of how exercise is viewed pre or during treatment yeah so um I've had fantastic experiences with my my healthcare professionals so um after I obviously got diagnosed within the sort of um athlete medical service I ended up obviously moving over to kind of the um NHS and to be treated there and um I've I'm being treated in the Royal Surrey in Guildford um, at the TYEC, which is the Teenage Young Adult Cancer Unit. Um, I was 29 and about 10 months when I got diagnosed. I snuck in there. Um, so I am now actually 30, but they haven't kicked me out, so I'm all right. And um, they are, they're fantastic. Um, and, you know, obviously with the approval and consent of my oncologist, I was able to kind of go out and race at the European Championships and and I've been supported in sort of, living my life around it and I think they have a real appreciation that also living my life also involves exercise um so they've been very positive um around kind of encouraging me to 
continue exercising. The kind of main piece of advice, which makes a lot of sense is, I guess, for me, normal exercise would also be kind of lifting weights three to four times a week um, and, you know, relatively heavy weights as well. Um, And really sort of switching my focus to I'm not really trying to um, build muscle at this point. Um, I'm not obviously, you know, when you're lifting heavy weights, essentially you're tearing your muscle and asking your body to rebuild it that's not really something I should be asking my body to do at this point. I think I just need to let it um, kind of deal with the treatment. So just trying to kind of manage myself and be a little bit more, a bit more sensible essentially and sort of maintain, I'm lifting maybe once or twice a week and just trying to maintain a little bit of muscle, but that's partly just for my own mental health as well. Erin, did you have to go through any egg preservation or anything? Have you decided to do that prior to starting chemotherapy? Yeah, I did. I had a fantastic experience, actually. And that's part of the reason I wanted to really talk about, um, you know, early detection. Obviously, everyone talks about early detection from a prognosis perspective, which obviously is hugely important. Um, But also, you know, as someone who was in their 20s, and I also was well basically athletes particularly you'll find olympians um really think about babies in four-year cycles um and for me um i really wasn't thinking about children until after paris 2024 um which obviously is not a normal thing to be thinking about but obviously as a weighed athlete it's sort of a bit difficult to carry around an extra extra um couple of kilos um and so you know children has always wanted to be in my future but definitely wasn't in my immediate future um and, um, you know, with with the diagnosis came, obviously, the, the, the risks of that chemotherapy present fertility. And that's one of the reasons I want to talk to young people about, you know, early detection also means the early you detect, you may have a better chance, depending, obviously, on your diagnosis and, and everything like that, of, of egg preservation and fertility preservation as well. So um, we ended up, it was incredible. I was referred to Guy's Hospital in London, um, their assisted conception unit, and they were amazing. And we had a pretty tight time frame to really move. Um, my oncologist basically gave me three weeks from her appointment to wanting me to start chemotherapy. Um, and that was on a Thursday. So then the following Tuesday, I met with the team at Guy's. Um, and then two weeks later from that initial Guy's appointment, I was having um, egg retrieval. Um, so it was incredibly well-managed, fast turnaround. Obviously, luckily, my body responded in the right way to the drugs um, because that's that's something, you know, we don't have any control of. Um, uh, but, yeah, I was able to preserve eggs and, and my husband and I decided to freeze embryos because it, it was a little bit more stable as well. So we've got nine, nine embryos um, on ice, which is amazing. And as my granddad pointed out to me, that's actually an eight and a cox. So um yeah we're, we're we're good to go for the von trap rowing team later in the future if, if that ever comes to it oh that would be amazing to see if that happens yeah. <laughs> so obviously you talked about scalp cooling um was that something you were always going to go for or being a bit more personal but is it something around body confidence that you're worried about as well um i think yeah it it's a weird one like i've never been particularly body conscious but it it was something that I really, I didn't even need to think about because for me, it's sort of the opportunity. If, if you, let's say, okay, if I went out and I saw someone who didn't have a hair, particularly a woman um, who was younger, you would think, oh, they're having cancer treatment. Essentially, you would assume, you wouldn't necessarily go to alopecia or, or any of the many other reasons someone might not have hair. Um, and so for me, it was, 
a bit of a no-brainer to try because you don't know if you don't try. Um, and also it would give me the freedom to potentially kind of be able to go um, out and about and be a bit normal, quote unquote. Um, so yeah, so I've, I've had three rounds and I've, I, it's really difficult to say what success is really, to be honest, um, uh, because I think it depends so much for different people. Um, but, you know, I'm very, very thin on the top. Um, it, my husband and I were laughing actually, because actually from the front, I actually look okay. But literally if I turned around, <laughs> it would look, um, it looks a little bit different, but um, I'm wearing a cap most of the time anyway now, because I'm so, I'm very thin on top and it's quite sunny. Um, so actually, you know, I'm getting away with it for now. But to be honest, um, it was something that I wanted to basically race the Europeans. If I could keep my hair to race the European Championships with hair, that would have been good because um, just from a skin management perspective, it actually could have been quite quite difficult because um, I'm out in the sun now, out training it outside all the time. And I also had my 30th birthday and I thought oh, it would be nice to be able to look back on the pictures and not remember you know, you remember the day, not remember that I was quite poorly at the time. And in terms of kind of moving forwards and going for surgery, um, have you kind of had that consultation now? Are you aware of kind of what surgery you're having and the consequences of that? Yeah, so um, I'm not I'm not at 100% yet, but I mean, I'm pretty sure essentially the way that we're most likely going to be going is, is a double mastectomy and a reconstruction. Um, I've been sent off for genetic testing um, and, you know, I've got paternal history in my family. Um, so I'm waiting on the results on that, which probably will be in the next couple of weeks. Um, and so once I know that, that obviously might take take away so, sort of some of the choices that that sort of been laid out to me but I think it was explained to me really well um and that's something that you know I think you know as healthcare professionals as anyone's listening um it, it's thinking about it's 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 not even actually having choice it's the illusion of choice and it's it's the autonomy that I think a patient can feel even though you know the route is very clear you know I've consented to treatment and as a result you know I'm pretty much set on a path. I am aware of that, but it's nice to kind of feel like you've got a bit of a bit of choice. So it's sort of exploring the options, even if you're just talking about them in a consultation is a very general conversation. So my oncologist sort of explained it in a way of essentially we've got the cancer that I have now that needs to be dealt with and the options that are available, whether that's lumpectomy radiotherapy or single mastectomy or then potentially double mastectomy. But then there's also my genetic testing, which obviously then may push me on a different course. Um, and then there's also, if I am gene negative, then there's other considerations which might then push me to make a decision about the cancer that I currently have and my future risk of developing other cancers. And it's... Um, I just felt I felt in that conversation, even though essentially I was nudged along a road, which essentially means that, you know, I think absolutely the right decision um, for me and medically is a double mastectomy and a reconstruction is that, you know, it felt like we walked the path together, if that makes sense, of conversation, um, because it does make the most sense. Um and again, even, you know, we talked about the options. Obviously, there's, you know, reconstruction from a muscle. Um, and, um, you know, we talked about reality is given my job, that wouldn't really be obviously a first choice for me. Um, and then obviously, you can have reconstruction from other tissue in your body. But again, you know, I'm, I'm a weighed athlete, I'm sort of, I'm sort of sit kind of eight stone or something. It's, 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 I've not really got a lot of options there, um, necessarily. And so then, 
you know, we're probably looking at, um, you know, silicon implant reconstruction. So even though there was no real other options for me, you know, I felt like there were. Um, and I think that that's a big part of acceptance for me is, is sort of feeling like, you know, I've got some autonomy in this, even though a lot of it's out of my control. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of different decisions that we have to make in the background and then try and present them to you. Almost like when you go to a shop and you want to buy something, that's how one of our oncologists explains it, that that is what it is. But ultimately, you're going to guide someone down a specific purchase. That's what it's going to be. Because as you said, it's the best thing for you. And obviously, as you said, you're trusting us medical professionals. Not everyone does, because it is difficult, especially when there's so many different options that are given to you. Um, how has your partner, your husband, found all the different options from the surgical point of view? Um, I think he's he's been amazing, to be honest. He's been very much sort of a, you know, we, we're we in this together and, and whatever whatever the right thing is to do. Um, we actually had this conversation a couple of, couple of days ago um when he just said you know what I'm I'm so glad that you know you're probably you know we're going to have the kind of the double mastectomy because it you know from for this particular type of cancer obviously you know um regardless of my gene results and all this sort of thing if we remove all the breast tissue um then that dramatically kind of reduces that risk of recurrence and and so you know we're not sitting there any time that you know let's say I had a single mastectomy um in the future, I'm worried about lumps or worried about things and thinking, oh, my gosh, this is all happening again. Um, you can obviously have, you know, elective massive risk reducing surgery. And um, he's he's very on board with that. Um, I think, you know, he's he's someone he, he's so supportive. And, and, you know, unfortunately, he's he's in touch by breast cancer in his family. His mother's had it twice. And um, so he, he he's kind of very well versed in in it. And he's just yeah, he's, he's sort of backed me all the way. And I think what's weird for me, I think, um, is, you know, I'm quite a slight person, but I do have quite a large chest. And um, I've already been sort of been told, you know, we, we won't be able to reconstruct you to your current size, which is not a decision making factor at, at all for me. But I can't really get my head around that at the moment in that um, I, I more just I can't imagine what my body is going to look like. Um, so I think, you know, there is the reality for some people like myself who, you know, are the kind of the, the larger chests where you're having a reconstruction. But I think to some extent it will feel more like a mastectomy because um, I'm just used to there being a lot more there and there's going to be a lot less there than there was before. But ultimately, you know, if it saves my life, then that's that's something that I'll do. It's interesting you say that. So quite a few people that I've kind of reviewed for in a breast clinic, for example, the they find that even if they've had a reconstruction and it's slightly sometimes larger sometimes smaller or it's just a mastectomy and it's on a one-sided it can take a long time firstly to look in the mirror or to do self-examination which obviously we are huge advocates for um, and I know you've done a video for a Copperfield as well but those sort of things that psychological element there's so much involved in it and obviously everyone's going to be different um, but yeah it's just about trying to guide people through that kind of journey because some people will be fine some people it takes a long time I've had a, a breast patient who came back for a recurrence and still she wasn't able to look at herself with her top off um, it's really hard so yeah it, mm. I think it's just that it's just something that's so physically present it's just you know it's something that it's just part of it you know especially when you're like um a young woman like kind of growing up it's just part of your your entire it's very much defines your body shape and type um, you know, you've got to try and find the positives. My one of my very good friends um, is a rower. She was a lightweight rower, so she was 
teeny tiny and um and she was just laughing with me she was like Harry, I don't think you've ever heard of bralettes before like think of this like non-underwired bras you're going to be able to buy think of the money you're going to save in bikinis and <laughs> you know like well, you just got to go well yeah I guess yeah like you know you just got to roll with it I mean it's just an excuse to buy a whole new wardrobe so <laughs> Oh, Erin, honestly, your outlook on everything is just absolutely inspiring. Um, So thank you so much. I think the last thing that we always end on with guests is asking them about top tips. So we have a really wide audience, healthcare professionals, students training to be healthcare professionals. We have lots of patients listening. What top tips would you like to kind of end on? So I think kind of the big thing is um, I've wanted to sort of, keep my identity you know within the diagnosis and within what's happening um I've been you know really lucky to uh, um I you've mentioned copper pill before but I, I met Chris Hallinger who kind of founded it obviously along with her twin um at an event uh, last year and she was just amazing and and she just sort of kept her personality and kept her herself within within everything that happened and I think it's really easy to get lost in in a cancer diagnosis um because you know there's there's so much information there's so much and you become you know all of a sudden you know you've got a new identity and and it doesn't mean that that's right or wrong or anything else but it's sort of just sort of remembering yourself in it so kind of for individuals listening is just remember that you know this can be happening to you or you can be sort of part of the process and 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 sort of be more active and present in it and that doesn't mean you need to do anything else I just think it's a way of thinking about it um you know and it's a little bit like maybe like we're talking about you know the exercise and chemotherapy and things like that you know either you're being given chemotherapy or you know you're taking chemotherapy and you'll think right okay and I'm going to go for a walk and I'm going to do this and I'm going to not just let it wash over you but try and work with it in some way um and I'm just trying to keep your identity because that that was really key for me that I just didn't want to become you know, a, a stat or, or get lost. And, and I think that's something that my um, sort of the healthcare professionals I've worked with have been amazing and, and recognising that what's important to me. Um, so, I, you know, I can't imagine many, many pants of patients, literally generally one of the first things when I got diagnosed, I was like, so what does this mean about rowing? Um, is, you know, that's probably not of the first few things that they get asked. Um, and, you know, that's maybe an indictment on me. I maybe need to spend a little bit less time rowing. But also it's more just, you know, that's what's important to me. That's a massive part of my routine. That's part of my structure. That's part of my where I, you know, I get confidence from and 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 I'm part of a team and sort of pulling me out of that team and saying, no, no more rowing for you. That's it. You need to rest would have been really bad for my mental health. And probably I would have responded to treatment not as well, um, you know, mentally and physically. So recognizing the individual and valuing the individual I think is huge and like you said you know you 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 need to basically guide us down a path that's actually pretty well trod and it's probably the right thing to do but it's remembering it's necessarily the first time they're walking down that path and so you know the way that you frame it and the way that you can sort of make it make it feel like they're experiencing it and I think I think like you know my biggest takeover from team sport and to cancer is is everyone's on your team you know I I've had some amazing um, messages from people who um, reached out to me after the European Championships because they saw me crying all over the BBC <laughs> and um, you know I I genuinely didn't expect the the response that I had um, 
because ultimately I was just doing it for myself um and it obviously resonated with the people which was amazing and that's why I thought you know what like this is kind of this is this is the message that I can push out is essentially like you know team sports are amazing because you've got all those people doing that for you and with you like you were talking about you know that team um that's what cancer is basically like you know there is no one against you everyone is for you and even if what they're telling you is really difficult and hard to process you know everyone is on your team and you know cancer is a real team sport and that's something that um it's just kind of worth remembering um one last rowing analogy is is that you know essentially you get big teams and stuff but you kind of get single scholars and they're like the the grittiest of all the rowers because they're just on their own in a single it's very quiet when you watch the racing because there's no coxes chatting or other teams shouting to each other it's just kind of one man in his boat one woman in his boat and I think kind of cancer is a little bit like you know you're a single scholar really like ultimately you're the one that's got to physically endure the race you've got to go through it you've got to do the blood sweat and tears but it doesn't mean you have to do it on your own. Um, you know, you've got all of these people around you. You've got your team doctor, your physio, your coach, your family and friends. You've got the crowd, you've got the cheerleaders, you've got the f- everything. Um, and I think like that's the sort of way I kind of think about it in my head. You know, it's a race that we've got to we've got to complete. You've got to endure, but you don't have to do it on your own. And, and just trying to remember that everyone is for you is a really, really good way to kind of take every day. Oh, Erin, you'll have loads of supporters all on the banks of the river cheering you on absolutely as you go through this race. So thank you for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Jay McNamara and Naaman Jalka Anderson. A huge thank you again to our guest, Erin Kennedy. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature we've discussed. And to receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form podcast thank you again for listening and taking